Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our 31st podcast in our series on the second half of world history as we continue to discuss the effects of the ongoing Second World War. In the 30th podcast, we looked at Operations Case Yellow, which was Case White, which was Hitler's invasion of Poland, allied with the Soviet Union, which would eventually eliminate the country of Poland and make the Soviet Union the next door neighbor now to the east of Germany. We then looked at Operation Case Yellow, where Hitler invaded the Benelux countries and France in, again, less than four months' time or about four months' time. Hitler, unfortunately, was able to conquer more territory than his predecessors could not do in over four years during the First World War. So in this podcast series on number 31, we're going to see that Hitler is not going to be able to launch his dream invasion of the Soviet Union just yet because the relatively new prime minister of Great Britain by the name of none other than Winston Churchill refused to acquiesce to Hitler's demands. He is not a Neville Chamberlain, as Hitler is finding out. So Operation Sea Lion is when Hitler attacks Great Britain next. The attack could not st- could not begin in the way that Operations Case White and Yellow were planned, because, of course, Hitler was attacking 100% on land. This was not the case, of course, with the British Isles being surrounded by water in the English Channel, one of the most turbulent bodies of water in the world, despite its, its very narrow uh, neck at some points. That's partly what makes it such a turbulent uh, body of water. That said, it would not be able to be this invasion of all three major forces of warfare, a land invasion, air force, and the Navy. Rather, the Navy would have to assault Great Britain from some uh, areas, while the Luftwaffe would do a major job of essentially bombing Great Britain into submission. As 1940 wore on, from June into July and August, what became known as the Blitz in Europe, in, in British history, which was the assault of Germany by Germany on an unprovoked Great Britain, this invasion was going to take more time, but it's not that it couldn't be done. It would just, again, take more perseverance and more time than Hitler certainly was planning on. Because, again, Great Britain did not fall immediately, Hitler continued to expand his invading operation. When, or at about a time, when it appeared in mid to late 1940 that Great Britain was about to be brought to its knees and have no choice but to surrender to Hitler's Germany and possibly suffer the humiliation of a German force invading the British Isles, Churchill, out of desperation, 
called his military commanders for an update where they told him under no uncertain terms that unfortunately Hitler was hitting all of the right places. They, he was, Hitler was aiming for the naval yards, the airfields, the airstrips. He knew where to attack because, of course, he had pretty much rule of the skies over the British Isles. Churchill, thinking once again to those images of Hitler dancing around a record player when France fell, wondered, if possible, that maybe this idea might work. Turning to his commanders and his leaders in the British, the Royal Air Force, he asked if it was possible to get a Navy, to get an Air Force squadron of planes off of the ground from any airfield that might be able to escape from Hitler's notice from the skies and possibly be able to launch an aerial bombardment of Germany. The commanders reluctantly agreed that, yes, it's possible. We could get anywhere from 8 to 12 or possibly even more planes off the ground. However, once they were airborne, if they were identified by the German Luftwaffe, they probably would never even come close to achieving their coordinates and their goals for the mission. Churchill understood that. And which is why he would force or he would ask to have the planes when they left the British airfields to fly directly north rather than east directly towards Germany. As was once said in warfare, sometimes your fastest way home is the longest way around. The commanders agreed that that would be a good idea. However, anywhere in Germany, most likely by the time the British Air Force dropped their bombs, on the targets, the British Air Force probably would not be able to return home in time before they ran out of fuel. That would simply be a risk that Churchill said they would have to take. The commanders agreed. When a map of Germany was rolled out, the commanders immediately started pointing to some of the best industrial sites and the largest uh, installations of military hardware. Churchill wanted none of those destinations, none of those targets. The men sat back aghast and asked, well, where in Germany do you plan on having the Royal Air Force risk? It's in one, possibly a one-time only surprise invasion of the German territory. Churchill, with that massive cigar in his mouth, pulls it out and puts his large middle finger of his right hand down smack on top of Berlin. You're joking, the commanders said to Churchill. No. Berlin is of no military significance, they protested. He agreed. Industrially, there were a lot better places to hit than Germany, they also retorted. Churchill didn't disagree. Then why would you be wasting the resources on Berlin? Because it's not just to Berlin. It's not just Berlin to Adolf Hitler, Churchill countered to his Air Force squadrons. Rather, it's his beloved Berlin. Churchill realized that Hitler had turned Berlin into a world-class city and was even planning, once all his military conquests were done, 
to make Berlin a prized city of what the city of tomorrow could look like. Hitler had many plans drawn out. He had models of the city with different forms of technology that would be learned from the war, be able to be used for residential applications. He truly wanted it to be a world-class destination. Churchill knew that, and that's why he ordered those planes to attack Hitler's beloved Berlin. It truly would be a punch in the gut that would momentarily take the wind out of Hitler's sails. It would also drive home a point to the German people that your beloved capital is not safe from retaliatory airstrikes. The commanders attempted to protest once again, but Churchill would have none of it. The man even said, I recorded, but we do not have his name. As Churchill stood up to leave and adjourn the meeting, you realize that Hitler may then turn around and attack London and other areas of civilian populations. Churchill said, that's what I'm hoping for. Aghast, the man asked, why would you want him to hit civilian population centers? As Churchill said, because it takes the pressure off of our industrial and military installation sites. At that, nobody could disagree with Churchill. If Great Britain's industrial and military destination sites were continued to be hit from the Luftwaffe, Germany would eventually occupy the British Isles. With that, the orders were planned for the British Royal Air Force planes that were the few planes that were still available that could possibly get into the sky before being shot down that those heroes of British pilots putting and packing their planes with as many much military hardware as possible flew off into the night in order by morning to launch an invasion of Berlin and an aerial assault that fortunately was successful. This was one of the first times when it was known that Hitler lost his temper upon hearing the news that his beloved Berlin was hit. Just exa exactly as Churchill was hoping, going back to the many months prior, when Churchill looked at those pictures and saw Churchill, saw Hitler dancing around to the song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Sure enough, Hitler was attacked on his emotions. And because of that, Hitler ordered the Luftwaffe, which his own commanders suggested he not do, but he overrode them and ordered the attack of the military and industrial destinations of Great Britain to be abandoned and to attack the population centers such as London. And again, that's what started the blitz that Churchill was hoping for, allowing Britain to rebuild the remaining forces it had, hopefully ally with the United States and eventually secure enough forces to retaliate against Great Britain, against Germany on land, an operation as we know that would still be years in the offing. But for the time being, Britain had the breathing room it so desperately needed. And yes, as, Ch as Churchill also was hoping Hitler 
like that young kid on Christmas morning with the present in his hands, wondering what's in the box could no longer contain his excitement and eventually would tear that box open to see what was inside. That also would be Hitler, the man who had that present, who saw the Soviet Union right there that he planned on attacking in early 1941, would now, his commanders told him, have to wait until 1942 at the earliest. Hitler would have none of it. Simultaneously, therefore, listeners, simultaneously, with Operation Sea Line going through, but not yet successful on his Western Front, Hitler launched an invasion on his Eastern Front with a smaller percentage of forces than he hoped to have when he originally drew up the plans for Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. In the same week of the same month that Napoleon attempted to attack and subjugate Russia to no avail, so too would Hitler attack the Soviet Union, and as we know, to no avail. But unlike Napoleon, Hitler will pay with tens of millions of more innocent civilian and military lives before he would learn ultimately the same lesson that Napoleon had learned. Attacking the Soviet Union or Russia proper was indeed a practically impossible undertaking. It would be hard enough when Hitler could point his forces majority of his forces directly east at the Soviet Union. But now because his forces are divided, with half invading, trying to still invade the British Isles, and on the opposite side of that continent, attempting to attack the Soviet Union, was going to be turned out to be the beginning of his undoing. Simultaneously, while Hitler was number one, trying to still succeed in Operation Sea Lion, knocking this Great Britain out of power, two, launching operation of the invasion of Soviet Union, three, would be another front that Hitler had opened up through his ally Mussolini south of Italy, and that would be in North Africa. To give you an idea how important North Africa was to Hitler, he put his number one field marshal, none other, then, as was his nickname known, the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, in charge of the African Corps to be able to occupy North Africa as World War II progressed. The Allies were aghast. Why would Hitler put his number one, his primary field marshal, essentially making sandcastles in North Africa? What is the point? Mein Kampf, it didn't spell out, at least not in a way that Churchill was able to understand. Franklin Roosevelt and his top military commanders, staring at a, the world map, not able to understand. Operation Sea Lion, that's understandable. Operation Barbarossa, attacking the Soviet Union, understandable. Again, from Hitler's perspective. No, you don't want to do two at the same time. But Hitler has surprised the world, unfortunately, with what he was able to do. Certainly, he might be able to win a two-front war 
that was of his own making. But why North Africa? It just didn't make sense. And at one point, late in 1940, 41, Churchill, unfortunately, realized what Hitler was doing. It was, as Hitler wrote, part of his two-prong attack, a pincer attack of the Soviet Union. Pincer attack. As a strategy, you don't even need to be a military strategist to understand what a pincer is. You have an invading force from one side and an invading force coming from close to the opposite direction. Italy, you know, north, south, or east, west. But with what Hitler was throwing into the Soviet Union in Europe, there was no pincer about it. Hitler was attacking in full front, full force. A pincer would mean that a force would be coming in through Central Europe and another force, maybe Army Group A, through the Baltic region into the Soviet Union. But Hitler wasn't doing that. Rather, the, for, the German military machine was invading head-on directly west to east into the Soviet Union. Where's the pincer in that? It occurred to Churchill what Hitler meant about a pincer attack. And once again, unfortunately, as Churchill said to an aide, Hitler's grandest military plans have yet to be recognized. Looking at what he had done, he, Hitler, had done throughout all of Europe at this point in attacking the Soviet Union, the aide asked, what do you mean his grandest days are ahead of him? And as Churchill said, Hitler is planning a pincer attack on the Soviet Union, but he's doing it in a way that had never been done before in human history and has never been done since and hopefully never will. To give my listeners an idea of what I mean by a grand pincer attack, it's easiest if you stop the podcast, open up a map of Europe, the Soviet, Russia, and Africa. You can even look at a modern map. You'll see it. And it worked out like this. The full German force coming in from Germany through occupied Poland into the Soviet Union proper was not two parts of the same pincer. It was only the northern part of that pincer attack. The southern pincer was coming out of South Africa, up through the Middle East, and into the Transcaucasus region of Asia that was occupied by the Soviet Union. In other words, listeners, Hitler's pincer attack again, was the only and still is the only one in world history that took place not on one, not on two, but on three different continents. The northern pincer attack was coming in from Europe, the southern pincer attack coming from North Africa on the African continent, and they would meet up on the Asian continent. Again, I say this, and please do not interpret as in any way admiration for what Hitler did or tried to do. 
It's just the opposite. But unfortunately, we have to recognize what the man did and what he was capable of up to this point. The whole idea why Hitler thought that Napoleon's lessons of failure did not apply to him was not just because Hitler was invading with a mechanized force that was unavailable to Napoleon. No. Napoleon attempted to occupy Russia by occupying Russia, by getting to Moscow, Stalingrad, or before that, Volgograd, St. Petersburg, and other, and eventually forced the Russians into submission. That would require his soldiers, all on foot or horseback, to have taken months, if not years, to do. Hitler, despite having mechanized warfare at his fingertips, wouldn't even need that long. Why? Because the northern and southern pincer arms, the European and the African pincer arms, were to meet in none other than the area right where President Vladimir Putin attacked Ukraine, not in 2022, but starting in 2014. That Russian leader, Putin, is trying to occupy the exact same region that Stalin knew he could not lose and Hitler knew I had to have if I'm going to wreck the Soviet Union and destroy it. Why? Because during World War II, the Transcaucasus region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, where we get the term Caucasian from, was the primary site of the vast majority of natural gas and oil resources that the Soviet Union was using to not only warm its people in the summer, excuse me, in the winter, but to also to feed the vast, massive Soviet military machine. Hitler guesstimated that if he could occupy those oil fields and cut off those resources to all of the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union would fall within a matter of six to nine months. Later on, long after the war was drawn to a close, analysts once again looked at Hitler's plans, looked at the current commodities that the Soviet Union then had, and realized that Hitler was wrong. It would not have been six to nine months to bring the Soviet Union to its knees and crush it. Sadly, as some guesstimates said, it might have taken as few of three, if not up to just under six months. Especially if the Soviet Union had a brutally hard winter, the Russian people, the Soviet people, might not starve to death. They might not even dehydrate to death. They might simply freeze to death. Hitler could have cared less how it happened, as long as it happened. So at this point, Hitler is extended out as far as he is going to physically be able to see in his lifetime as the Fuhrer of Germany. There are, is German military hardware being dropped on Great Britain thousands of miles east into the Soviet Union thousands of miles south into North Africa. The reason I'm stressing the term thousand miles, thousands of miles, is at this point, even an amateur third rate 
armchair military strategist can recognize the problem here. Hitler, you are way too far extended in terms of what your forces can do from its home bases back in Germany and occupied European territory. In other words, Hitler was breaking the natural law of strategic overstretch. The law of strategic overstretch states that for every mile obtained, if the invading army does not gain more than the cost of to attain that mile, it is the beginning of the end. In other words, when Hitler invaded Czechia, um, occupied Czechoslovakia through the ballot box and through Great Britain, handing it over the western half of the country, again, as I stressed, Hitler was able then to get their oil reserves, their military hardware. In other words, for every mile that Hitler obtained, benefited him far more. Hitler right now is in the reciprocal or inverse relationship, and it's not ever going to be undone for him. Every mile now that the German forces are traipsing around the world is costing him far more than he is getting in return. Please note, it is not as though as mythically believed that Hitler's commanders ran out of tanks or ran out of airplanes. No, quite the opposite. There are pictures in Rommel's memoirs that I've read and I've seen myself as well as other commanders like Guderian, where they have world-class brand new tanks, the equivalent of Jeeps and other hardware, and they are sitting there frozen, useless. Why? Hitler planned accordingly for the major products of war, tanks, airplanes, guns, mortars, etc. But where Hitler was lacking in his planning as a logistician, logistics, is he was underestimating how quickly those forces would be consuming the much needed products of warfare like petroleum products such as gasoline and oil. What's worse is that in many cases, Rommel had barrels and barrels of oil, as Hitler's northern commanders had, again, barrels of oil at their disposal, but it was the wrong kind. Listeners, a tank that is operating in 110 degree heat in North Africa does not use the same operating oil excuse me, not use the same oil that a tank engine would need operating in temperatures of 30 below in the northern regions of Europe and Russia. It is no different than in the cars that we drive around ourselves. If you look in the owner's manual of an average a typical car, it will state that if your car typically operates in these climate regions, you use a lighter weight oil in the colder climates. In the hotter climates, you use a heavier weight, a more viscous, thicker oil, because the oil thins out under extreme heat. A thick oil, which is what the northern forces had, essentially became like a sludge and was of no use to the commanders in northern Europe. Rommel, having many barrels, hundreds of barrels at each stop of very, very lightweight oil, Sure, it would allow the tank engines and Jeep engines and gas and, and airplane engines to start, but because they were too thin, 
the engines would eventually freeze. And by freeze, I mean seize together. In other words, he would melt the engines. That's the reason, ultimately, folks, that Hitler was defeated through Rommel in North Africa. There's a reason why Rommel was known as the Desert Fox. There was a reason why some commanders ordered flags down to half-staff when Hitler, when Rommel committed suicide. He was an ardent, a prudent military commander. He would have most likely defeated British Field Marshal Montgomery down in North Africa. Montgomery of Great Britain did not defeat Rommel so much because he outfoxed him is rather rather Montgomery had the military hardware that was simply unavailable to the desert fox himself this is what we mean by the strategic law of natural or natural law of strategic overstretch and the failure of logistics that hitler was facing as a result a two front war very very difficult to wage but a three-front war, for all intents and purposes, was impossible and deadly. And yet, as the year 1942 drew to a close, it was still going to take years for these colossal mistakes that Hitler was making would eventually catch up with him and still cost tens of, and tens of millions of more lives in the process. So there's where we're going to take a break from looking at the Second World War in the European theater proper. When we come back for our 32nd podcast in this series, as this is the series of U.S. history, not world history, we're going to be taking our trip back to the United States to scratch our heads and look around and ask ourselves, so President Roosevelt, as you will be coming into an unprecedented third term as President of the United States, what exactly are you doing to prepare to get involved with a war that we could not be more unprepared for? That's where we'll begin in our next podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please go to my website for any other ideas if you have to wish to email me with or take a look at my other podcast series or read my blogs. Other than that, hope you continue to enjoy the series. If so, please leave me a review. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time when we're back in the United States finding out what we're doing as we begin to head in to World War II.